are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome listeners, uh, whether you're a first time listener or you have been joining us on this series as we've been going through the book of Luke. We will be doing uh, Luke chapter 12, part 2 today. Typically I don't like to split them up, but that's just what happened on the last one. Um, Now before we go into that, you know, before we start into part two, uh, and on the heels of how I ended part one, it was something that I was kind of thinking about um, as I was going over the, the podcast that I did over part one and how we ended. Then I wanted to make something clear in uh, what I was implying. When I'm talking about, or when Jesus talks about, I should say, in chapter 12, 33 through 34, to sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old. And uh, if you don't know my whole discourse on that one, go back and listen to it. Um, when he talks about that, he's not saying that every single person in, who has ever existed, that the, um, the command is everybody has to sell everything that they have and we should all just live with nothing and just be content with food, drink, and clothing. Obviously, we know the early church had houses. It says that that's where they met, house to house. We know that there was, um, there's things in life that can be deemed necessities and for various people that might be a little bit different looking. The point is, is that we live simply in order that others may simply live, that we live in a way that reflects the life of Jesus and that our home is not here, our home is in heaven. So if you have a house, I'm not saying you have to go sell it. If you have a car, I'm not saying that you have to go sell it. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. As we know, it says in Acts 2 and Acts 4, as we talked about. And here's, I wanted to go over this passage real quick with you guys. Because I think it's important on the heels of, of coming off of part 1 and 33 and 34 and what we're going to be getting into right now, um, even in going into James 5. This concept is crucial. This is one of the only places that you're ever going to see that Paul is actually, um, I don't want to say he's okay with, but he understands. He's in an understanding way of talking about the rich in this present age. And this is in First Timothy chapter 6. Um, right after he warns them about the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that many people have pierced themselves with many pangs or griefs. And so he's warning them about this, this love of money, about how where you, if your treasure really is on this earth, then that's where your heart is. It's identifying that and to, um, to flee from that. However, he understands that people have a starting place when they come to know Jesus Christ. Listen to what it goes on to say in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or proud, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future 
and before I read this last part, I want, I want to under, I want us to understand this. He says, look, if you are rich in this present age, I understand you have a starting place with Christ. There might be something that the Spirit is working on other than you relinquishing claim on everything that this world has to offer. Maybe there's other things that He's working with. But I want us to understand that God does richly provide us things to enjoy. But it is not supposed to be self-indulgent, luxurious type things. There are people who are rich who don't live as though they're rich. There's things that they have to enjoy, but that doesn't mean a self-indulgent, luxurious, you got to have the fanciest car, the fanciest house, all that various stuff. You might have wealth, but that doesn't mean that you spend it upon yourself. And the rest of the teachings are clear on this. But Paul understands you might have a starting place. And maybe you don't know this just yet. James 4.17 says, the one who knows the right thing to do for, and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Maybe you're not aware. Maybe the, the Spirit has not enlightened to you just yet. So he says, keep it basic, keep it simple. Okay? And listen to what he says in this next part. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. The premise that he's getting at here is that there might be people who in their starting place, maybe they're infants in Christ because they're still of the flesh, as 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, 1-3. through 3. Maybe you're still just an infant. Maybe you're just a baby Christian. Maybe you're just still self-indulgent and you just don't know any better just yet. He's telling you, look, grow up. But he's trying to do it in a very nice term. And take hold of that which is truly life. Because this world and the things that we can store up for ourselves in it are not. And so Paul, in an understanding way, and I think in a very gentle way, he's trying to tell people, guys, this is not really what life is about. I need you to mature in the faith and begin cultivating an imagery of Christ in your life so that others will see that ambassador that you're supposed to be to represent him. So hopefully that made sense. Um, I know probably some of you guys, if you're just now listening to it, you're probably thinking like, okay, why did you go into all that? Go listen to part one. You'll probably understand. Going into this, we're going to try to finish this up and, um, and get done with this in part two. Verse 35, all right? Let me actually just read 34 to go into this because it's linked together. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If you're storing up treasures on this life, or in this life, in this world, and you're self-indulgent, you're living in luxury, um, then I'm just going to tell you that's where your heart really is. If your heart was really in heaven, then you wouldn't care what you have in this life. And if you didn't care what you had in this life, then you'd be willing to give more instead of spend more upon yourself. It's kind of like, I've used the analogy many times before when it comes to riches, about how many people like to try to throw in there, well, I just, it, it's that I don't trust in those riches. That's not where my hope is, and I, I'm not trusting them. I once um, knew this girl in high school that her and this guy um, would date for a month, and then they'd break up for a week, and then they'd date for a month, and they'd break up for a week. And if you spend any time in an American high school, you, you know exactly the type of people that I'm talking about. And so anyways, this was like the eighth time they had broken up, and she um, happened to be good friends with me and another friend of mine, um, and so she came to us, and she was just like, I, I don't know what to do. He cheated on me, and, you know, I, I love this guy, and, you know, as much as you can know what love is in high school, um, and she just didn't know what to do, and she just was hurt, and she was in pain, and so we just listened to her, and... Um, 
Anyways, you know, come come to find out, the guy came back to her and, and was just like, "Hey, no, I'm I'm sorry, I'm I'm sorry. You know, I, it didn't mean anything. I didn't I didn't uh, I didn't want to do it. It's just she didn't mean anything to me, and I'm sorry." And and she asked him this question that I think is a legitimate question that we should be asking in this: If the girl didn't mean anything to you, then why did you do it? If it didn't mean anything, then why did you cheat on me? Why did you hurt me? Why did you? And I think that a lot of times we could probably learn from this type of situation because I think one day we're going to stand before God and and we're going to say, Hey God, these riches, these things I stored up for myself, as he talks about in the first part of Luke 12, they didn't mean anything to me. I love you. You're the one I wanted to, to, to be with and serve and, and give towards. And, and you're the one that I really love. All these things didn't mean anything to me. And I think God's going to say that same question to many people one day. Then why did you have it? If it didn't mean anything, you weren't trusting in it, your hope wasn't in it, then why did you have it? It wasn't the imagery of my son that I gave to you to live by. And I think the temptation for us, as he talks about in James 5, I want to turn to it real quick. The temptation is the same thing that James gives to us. He says in chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. It wasn't because you were rich, it was because you spent it upon yourself and not for the glory of God. He says this, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and you have and eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. He says, you've laid up treasure for yourself in these last days. The money that you got, it might have been God's provision. It might have been God's blessing that he gave to you to use it for his glory. But you used it for yourself. Listen to what he says in verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. And listen to what he says in verse 7. Be patient, therefore brothers until the coming of the Lord now why do I bring this passage up because it's exactly what Jesus is talking about here James is simply just repeating the teaching Jesus gave he says don't store up treasure for yourself in these last days find ways to give it to the glory of God don't live this life in indulgence that self-indulgent living where you're just getting your best life now. That is not what God intends for us. He wants us to grow into the image of Jesus, and that is not how Jesus lived. And yet so many people think that is simply just God's lavish blessing upon their lives. And he says, but be patient therefore, brother, because the temptation unto the God of this world who will give anything of this world to those who would bow the knee to him, the temptation to be lured into that is strong. So be patient, therefore, brothers, for the coming of the Lord. Now listen to what he goes on in the very beginning of Luke chapter 12 in this part two segment that we're doing in verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Same correlation, same parallel. James is simply repeating the teaching that Jesus did. Do not give in to the temptation for self-indulgent living. Living it up, having your best life now, living large, having those nice um, you know, cars that you got, 
having that fancy house that you got instead of simply living in a way that is simple so that others can simply live. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home because the reality is is that if you are living the self-indulgent life and you're getting your best life now, you're probably going to be very surprised when he does come and knock on that door. And you might be among the masses who misses his knock. I want you to notice something in here. You're the one who has to be responsible. We are the ones who have to be responsible for listening to the voice or listening for the knock of the master when he comes. Jesus doesn't come and open the door to us. We have to be awake. We have to be ready for when he comes and knocks so that we can hear that knock and we open the door to him. This is completely anti-Calvinistic. If you're a Calvin uh, follower, if you're a Calvinist and you believe that everything is in Jesus' court, everything is in God's court, he does everything for us, we don't do anything, then I'm sorry, this teaching really flies in your face. This is a teaching that says we have to be ready. We have to be awake. As the King James puts it, we have to have our loins girded. Ready for him to come. And it's in correlation, just as it was with James, with how you live this life. Do you live it in self-indulgence or self-sacrifice? Do you live it in luxury? And lasciviousness? Or do you live it in a way in which you're willing to sacrifice anything and everything for the glory of God so that the church may be built up? Because that's what the early church did in Acts 2 and Acts 4. And I know that's a hard concept for the typical American to understand. But the reality is God did not intend for you to live it up large in this life. He did not intend for you to have your best life now. He intended for you to have your gaze set on heaven with your mind set on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God as Colossians 3, 1-2 says. Maybe the reality is, is that verse 1 says that if then you have died with Christ, maybe you haven't really died with Him. Maybe you're not really with Christ and He's not really with you. And you're under this this veil and deception of thinking that you actually belong to Him, but you don't because your heart's desires for everything of this earth. You want, you want your family to be happy and secured and protected and taken care of, and you want that nice house, and you want those fancy cars, and you're going after all those things, and you work 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and all your thoughts are, gay, are consumed with this world and worldly things. And I'm not saying that even all those thoughts are bad. Wanting your family to be taken care of, that's not necessarily a bad thought, but it can become an idol if it violates and gets in the way of our mission for Jesus Christ. So stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And he goes on, he gives us this parallel. He says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. Now, I I want you to understand this concept because Jesus himself says that when the master comes and he finds you awake, it says that he himself is going to come, he's going to dress himself for service and have them recline at table with him, with the master, and will come and will serve them. And it makes me think of Revelation 21 and verse 4 when it says that there's going to come a time in the end of all things when he's going to wipe away every tear. 
death will be no more, mourning will be no more, pain, the former things, they've all passed. And, and I get that mental imagery of Jesus coming and we've endured till the end. As Hebrews 10.36 says, you have need of endurance so that after you've done the will of God, you'll receive what is promised. And he talks about that concept of endurance and this life is supposed to be hard. It's a narrow path and few are going to walk it and its way is hard. And we endure till the end. And we might have our bruises and our battle scars. And we might be nicked up. But we get to the end. And we fall on our knees before him. And we're just exhausted. As Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4, 7-8. When he says that I've been poured out as a drink offering. I've finished um, this race. I kept the faith. I fought the good fight. Henceforth there is laid for me the crown of righteousness. That God will award to all those who have loved his appearing. And we look up. And we see the eyes of Jesus and we're just exhausted because we've given everything in this life. And he wipes away the tears and he begins to, to wipe the blood away and he begins to treat the wounds. And I just love the imagery of what it is and he just simply lifts up our chin and he says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. I don't believe that we get into heaven and Jesus is going to serve us as if we are the object of worship. Jesus is an object of worship. He is worthy as the lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power. But I do believe that one day we stand before him and he's going to take care of us. And I think that's what this... Parallel is saying, look at what he says later on in chapter Luke or in Luke in chapter 17, 7 through 10. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he is coming from the field, Come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, Listen to this, because this is our responsibility in this salvation that we've been given. Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me. Notice he said, Keep, um, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for the master to come home. He says, you have a job to do. Do what I've asked you to do. Keep the sheep. Plow. Whatever it is I've called you to do. Go out there and do it for the glory of God. Prepare supper for me. Dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward, you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. He says, you don't get to feel the reward in the end until the end. First, you must do what I've asked you to do until the end. Then I myself will come and recline at table with you and I will serve you and bandage you up and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come on in. It's a beautiful picture that he's trying to paint here. But what goes oftentimes unnoticed is our responsibility in that picture. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Um, actually, I'll just start in verse 15 when he talks about we have the unbelievable privilege that if you're a Jew and you're listening to this, let me just tell you, you have never had this privilege ever. Because you've, you've never had Christ before the new covenant came in. And until you gave your life to Christ, you never had the unbelievable privilege that only the church of Jesus Christ has. And that is to call God Abba, Father. That is a term that is reserved for the church. An intimate term to be able to use to call God as not just a father, but Abba, Father. And he says this in verse 14. I'm sorry, in, in 15. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, talking about the law, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children and heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, and I want you to notice something real quick, because Paul includes himself in this. He's talking about true children of God, true sons of God, and he includes himself in this responsibility. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. He says, you have a job to do. You want to be glorified in the end, then you must suffer with him in this life. It will be difficult, but he will be with you every step of the way as you are with him. And Paul says, we must suffer in this life. For the glory of God in order to be glorified with Christ in the end. I'm just reading scripture. That's all I'm doing. You can say I'm misunderstanding it. You can say I'm taking context out of it. But I would say you're the one who's twisting things if you don't see that. Or maybe things have been twisted for you and you've fallen into this wrong doctrine that's heretical and goes against and violates the word of God. The reality is we have responsibility. Romans 8, 15 through 17 makes that very clear. As well as Matthew 10.22 and Hebrews 10.36 and Hebrews 6.4-6. You can see littered all throughout scripture. We have a responsibility within the salvation to remain in the position of Jesus Christ firm until the end. That is what secures our salvation. Even as 2 Peter 1.5 talks on where it says that we are guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. It is our faith in Jesus Christ in the lordship of who he is and who he said he was and who he says he is and who he is in our life. It is that proclamation that the gates of hell will not stand against. And when we come into this grace, right, by which we stand through faith, we come into that position, he comes into us. As Romans 8 9 talks on, the spirit of Christ Right? Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you are not His. Okay, It's a very clear teaching. You might think that the Jews are still God's people. Let me just tell you, if they do not have the Spirit of Christ, they are not God's people. You can go side with Israel all you want to, and all you're doing is just being a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal unto God. Because He's not looking at Israel saying, that's my people. If you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to God. But once you belong to him through Jesus Christ, Jesus comes and lives in you. As John 15 talks about when he says, I and you and you and me. And it is that harmonious relationship that we must preserve until the end. And the way we do it is not by having enough good works or not by not having enough bad works. It is by having faith in Jesus Christ and the, 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 the person of Jesus Christ as the Lord over our life. And the works that we supplement to that faith keep that faith Strong and keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Son of God, as Second Peter one says. Now that wasn't going to be a little bunny trail that I was going to take, but I took it. So there it is. So he goes on, and we're going to talk about this concept even just a little bit. He says in verse thirty-eight, if he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this: that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also, as he's talking about in verse 22 to his disciples, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. He's warning them. He's telling them, look guys, it is not enough for you to have just come into me and me to come into you. 
That is a position that you must hold until the end. Listen to what he says in Second Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 8. And hopefully you guys are staying with me on this because this is probably one of the more important teachings that you will ever receive if you are not aware of all of this. Okay, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. I want you to understand something very carefully. The only time that the word beloved is used outside the context of the church is towards the Jews, of that they were God's beloved under the Old Covenant. Does he still love them? Absolutely. Just as he loves anybody else. And are they still allowed to come in? Yes, but only as through Jesus Christ. They will not come in through Moses. They will not come in through their own ancestry. They will not come in through their own lineage. The Jews are no longer God's people, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't love them. But the only time that's used is in Romans 8, I believe. Maybe Romans 9 at the beginning of it. Um, I forget what chapter it is, but it's the only time it's ever used outside the context of the church. Other than that, everything, every single time when beloved is used, it is used for the church of God. And that's important because I'm establishing the context of who Peter is talking to. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, the promise of redemption, glorification, the promise that we would be with him for all of eternity, even after death. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. The beloved, the church, genuine believers. He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He says, look, I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to fall away. I don't want you to apostatize. I don't want you to stumble. I want you to reach repentance if you're in sin. If you've messed up and you've stumbled, I want you to repent and I am patient towards you. But listen to what he goes on to say. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. What did we just read in Luke 12? Where do you think Peter got this teaching from? In, in 2 Peter chapter 3. Didn't we just read this exact thing? He says, look, I want you to repent. I don't want you to have anything against your conscience or against your record. Because 2 Corinthians 5.10 says that we will all stand, Paul includes himself, we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to give an account for what we've done in the body, whether good or evil. He says, I don't want you to ultimately perish. I want you to reach repentance and be in a right fellowship with me all the way to the end. But the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. So you better make sure you're ready. Interesting that it's identical teaching to what Jesus gave to us in Luke 12. And this is new covenant. This is Peter instructing the church. He says, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace." He says, you have a responsibility in this to make sure that your life looks the way that it should when Jesus Christ comes back. Peter gives the exact same teaching as what Jesus is doing. You must also be ready in verse 10. uh, I'm sorry, verse 40 in Luke 12. You must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. 
So Peter, who we just read from in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master will set over his household to give them the portion of food at the proper time? He answered him. He says, I'm giving this for all, but it's specific to those who are my servants. It's specific to those who are mine. And listen to what he goes on to say. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all of his possessions. Now if you know anything about Jewish custom, you know that the firstborn, the right of the firstborn, is one um, in which you, you, you get the possessions, you get the blessing, you're the firstborn. It is the right of the firstborn, right? And in Genesis chapter 25, I want you guys to see something real quick. Because starting in verse 29, we're going to talk about a guy named Esau. It says, Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now, what in the world does any of that have to do? He says very plainly that if the master finds somebody awake in the position that they're supposed to be in, doing what they're supposed to be doing, he says when he comes... He's going to set him over all his possessions. Essentially, he's going to give him a blessing. He's going to give him the blessing of, you could even say, the firstborn. Why is that paramount to us? Well, I'm going to read something in Hebrews chapter 12. Then I want you to see a correlation to it because it goes in with what we talked about prior to. It says this in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 12. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one, meaning among you, that nobody among you is like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What is that? It's the same way as what he's talking about contextually, worldliness. This life we live is just a temporary, you could even identify it as a single meal. Worldliness and living for this life and living for yourself in a self-indulgent way could lead you to ultimately coming to a place where you sell your birthright. And listen to what it goes on to say. In conjunction with 2 Peter 3, that he wishes all to reach repentance, right? He wants everybody to, to be able to reach repentance. Listen to what he says about Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal because he wanted to eat, drink, and be merry. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with, with tears. Esau had the blessing, but he gave it up. He sold it. Because the things of this world are more important to him than the blessing of the Father to be set over all of the possessions. And you can go read Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, and you're going to find that you're going to see the identical teaching that's there. And he goes on and he says this, talking about the master who did what he was supposed to. I'm sorry, the servant. 
He says in verse 45, but if that servant, that same servant who serves the master, who belongs to the master, who shares in the blessings, who has the promise that's given to him, right? As he talked about in 2 Peter 3, the promise of the Lord. He has all these things at his disposal. It's right there. The servant who is there, he says this. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed, similar to Moses going up on the mountain and they make the golden calf, right? The same exact thing. It says he's delayed. Same wording. If my master is delayed, he went up on that mountain and we just don't know when he's coming back. So let's go ahead and live it up. Let's take what the gold that God had given to us through Egypt to use for the temple and the building up of his glory. Let's go ahead and use that for ourselves and we'll make a golden calf. And we'll worship the golden calf. He says, if that master, if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed and coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. There's that expression again. He says, look, this person begins to actually make fun of people he used to serve with. <laughs> Why don't you guys go ahead and live it up? Jesus ain't coming in our lifetime. Go ahead and live it up. Man, what are you doing? This is a person who's turned his heart against him. In fact, the King James actually uses instead of um, saying says to himself, the King James says, says in his heart. It's a person whose heart has actually gone away from Christ. And begins to persecute his fellow servants that he used to serve with. Making fun of them maybe, mocking them. And he decides to eat, drink, and get drunk. Listen to what he says. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And it says, Jesus is going to return on a day. The master is going to return to that servant. And he's not going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. He's going to cut him up into pieces and he's going to throw him in with the unfaithful. And Matthew 25 says, the hypocrites. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. Now we're going into a different servant who's still serving the master, but he just didn't do what he knew he was supposed to in full. James 4.17 says, The one who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And he says, You're going to get a severe beating for it because you knew what you were supposed to do, but you didn't do it. Don't, man, please don't think... That when you came to Christ, all your past, present, future sins were wiped away. And you're not going to give an account for it on that day you stand before Jesus Christ. Because 2 Corinthians 5.10 says undeniably the truth. That we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Each of us to give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. And you can even go into Romans 14.10-12, I think, where it says that we must all stand before the judgment seat of God. Paul includes himself. You ain't going to get to escape it. And don't think that when you came to Christ, all your, all your past, present, future sins were wiped away and you won't give an account for those because that just is not the truth. That's a heresy that, that came into the church around the time of John Calvin. Do not believe that because it is not true. You will give an account and this is your warning. It is not easy to be the watchman on the wall because you have to tell people things sometimes that they don't want to accept but man, when I see that judgment coming, if I don't say anything to you on these podcasts or into person and people that I come encounter with, then I got blood on my hands. That's what Ezekiel 33 talks about. Listen to what he says. If you don't believe me, let me read Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. 
He says this, For if we, author includes himself, please don't miss that. The author writing to the church includes himself and them in this same warning. In which he just talked about, Jesus did, where he says that um, you will receive a severe beating. If you do what you know you shouldn't, or if you refrain from doing what you know you should. The sins of omission or commission, they're all sins. He says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You want further proof that he's talking to believers? Listen to what he says in verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? You can't get around it. There's no way to say that Hebrews chapter 26 through 31 is referencing an unbeliever. It is, there's no way. The only way that you can even attempt to do it is to twist and manipulate and massage the text in order to justify what you want it to say. This is referencing a believer. And if this is referencing a believer, undoubtedly, then that means that there's things in our doctrine that oftentimes in the American church that we're going to have to wrestle with. And because many people don't like to face the truth that they have a responsibility in their salvation, we like to just sweep it under the rug. The only person who has been sanctified by the blood of the covenant is a believer. The only person who can write scripture is a believer. When he says we. And the only person who God says in this context that he's going to judge is his people. Listen when he goes on to say. By which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said vengeance is mine I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall or to stumble in the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 26-31 I don't believe is an apostasy passage. I believe it's a judgment passage. You will give an account. Before God, before Christ, of your sins, when you did them intentionally. Same way as it was in the Old Testament, that it says that um, the atonement of blood was only good for the unintentional sins of the people. Now praise God, First John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is post-salvation. What the context of that passage did not say for the author is... Um, and maybe I'm actually been getting off my point on this one, but I think it's worth noting. He did not say, if we confessed our sins, he was faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleansed us from all unrighteousness as if it was at the moment of salvation. This is present tense, written in roughly 95 AD, 60 years after Christ, 60 years after John had given his life to Christ. He says, if we, present tense, confess our sins, that means that you have a responsibility to be forgiven by God. You have access through Christ to be forgiven and do not have to give an account before him on that day of judgment because he'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But if you have sin on your ledger, intentional sin, and you don't seek to make it right. You don't seek forgiveness. You don't seek that repentance. You will give an account and it will be a fearful expectation of judgment. A severe beating, if you will, as Luke 12 puts it. Now he goes on and he says in verse 48, But the one who did not know and did what deserved his uh, beating will receive a light beating. He says, if you didn't know, he says, there's still going to be an account you have to give. But it won't be the severe beating what that looks like, I, don't ask me. I don't know. I don't know what that's going to look like. All I know is that I don't want to face it. 
I don't want to stand before the one whom my soul loves and have to say, yeah, I, th- I thought that this was more important than you. I thought that I, myself, that I was more important than you. So I lived how I wanted to and I didn't quite live to the full. I drew a line where I was like, I- I'll go up to this point. Well, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira whenever they drew a line? And they said, no, we'll give up to this point, but we don't want to give anything more. Let me remind you, that was Acts chapter 5. And that was New Covenant. In which the Spirit struck Ananias and Sapphira down dead. Why he doesn't do it to many other people, I don't know. In an instant, maybe he does it with the slow thing of a sickness. or I don't know. And I don't know what it's going to look like when we stand before him. But we will stand before him and you will give an account. This is why it says in Philippians 2.12, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God Almighty who is living inside of you. Do not abuse that. Don't take his eyes that you're supposed to be living with for his glory and use them for other things. Don't take your hands that are supposed to be his hands and use them for other things that you shouldn't be using it for. This is what he ends this with. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. You have a responsibility in your salvation because God has given you the unbelievable privilege to have access to this salvation in Christ in which we stand through this grace. But as he says, to whom much was given, he will require much from you. So don't think that you get a get out of jail free card simply because you said, I want Jesus to be the Lord of my life. Now you have to go do it. It goes on in 49. We're going to quickly wrap up through this. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Let me just clarify this real quick. There are three baptisms mentioned in scripture. You have the baptism of water, the baptism of spirit, and the baptism of fire. Or you could say the baptism of sufferings or trials. All of them are something that we will be immersed in. Jesus himself was immersed in in the baptism of suffering. We will too. And he says, how great is his suffering until it is accomplished. The life, the freedom, the grace, the love, the power, the spirit, all those were made available once he suffered on that cross. And then some. The access that we needed to be with God. When he says it is finished, knowing what it is, is paramount to understanding what was finished. Everything that was needed to fulfill the law of Moses so that we didn't come through the law of Moses, but we came through Christ in order to get to God, it was accomplished and fulfilled. He goes on and he says, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I haven't come to give peace on earth. He says this, no, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's he saying here? Because I thought Jesus was the prince of peace and that we have perfect peace when our mind is stayed on him. Those are all true. But Jesus is also truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. And because he is the singularity of truth, there will be divisions for those who don't want to abide in it. Jesus did not come for us to just get along, to have unity outside of truth. He came so that we could have unity in truth. So if you find yourself just trying to to say the truth is not that consequential, 
truth isn't really worth contending for, well, then you would be in violation of what the text says because this is what he says here as well as in Jude 1.3 when he talks about it. He says, um, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it more necessary to write to you to contend for the faith, to contend for the truth. That means to actually prepare yourself for battle when he says contend. Agonizame is the Greek word and it will be an agonizing thing. It will be hard. When you stand for truth, there will be divisions in your life that you're having to, you will be willing, you will have to be willing to count that cost. And it even will probably come from your own earthly family. He also said to the crowds, so now he's talking specifically to the crowds, not to the disciples or directly to Peter. When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say there will be a scorching heat and it happens. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? Let me just say, there's a lot of hypocrites in the church today. If what Jesus is stating here, and he's calling people hypocrites... There's a lot of hypocrites in the church today who are temporally minded and so much so that they know so much about the things of this world. They can look at the skies and they can tell all kinds of stuff about what's going to happen. They can see signs of what takes place on this earth and they can see that various things are about to happen. And so many Christians today, I would say, even know everything about this world and nothing about God's. They'll be the clueless ones when the signs of the age begin to take place. The interesting thing is, is that if you're so temporally minded, that one day when you stand before God, you're going to remain that way because everything is going to be temporal for you. And here's what I mean by that. Satan is the God of this world and I believe that he's the God of the temporary. Not the God of the eternal. And one day, because you lived with such a temporal mindset, and you weren't paying attention, you weren't awake when that door got knocked on by Christ, you're going to miss it. You didn't study His Word, you didn't pay attention enough, you were so consumed with the things of this earth, and one day you're going to miss it. And there won't be another chance. The Master will come like a thief in the night, and He'll knock on that door. And you weren't waiting for him. You weren't ready for him. And you didn't hear that knock. And maybe nobody's ever told you that this is a a real thing. But let me just tell you, it is. Because Jesus says it is. And because the epistles uphold it. In verse 57 he says, And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. He's given us an understanding here that, that God will bring judgment to light. It's going to happen. And so in light of all of this, in light of part 1 of Luke chapter 12, and part 2 of chapter 12, hopefully you've listened to both of them, in light of all this, you should really be asking yourself, are you ready? Don't try to deceive yourself. Don't try to manipulate or massage it into something that it's not. Just ask yourself, are you listening with ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Are you listening 
Are you awake? Are you keeping your lamps burning? Are you having your loins girded or staying dressed for action? Even in in Revelation 16, 17, Jesus talks about it like this. Or he, um, he says this, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is, in verse 15, Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. That's not saying that, well, you weren't really a Christian. That's a person who's staying awake, who's keeping their garments on and not taking them off. So that one day he stands before him and he will be naked and exposed before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He says the blessing comes to those who stay awake, who keep their lamps burning and who keep their garments on. And that is your responsibility, Christian, to do with the grace that God will provide to you to do it. He's given us everything that we need for life of godliness. Second Peter 1, three. His divine nature has given us everything that we need for life of godliness. We have no excuse. It has all been given to us. The grace of heaven has been supplied to our account, not as an unmerited favor, but as the enabling power of heaven to achieve that which was formerly impossible in us, and that is to live the Christ-like life. He has given it to us in Christ. Now, whether or not you utilize it is up to you. Whether or not you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is according to 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. Whether you have faith to believe, as he says in Mark 9, I think it's 34 or 23, where he says that nothing will be impossible for him who believes. Ephesians 1 says there is a treasure chest of riches for us in heaven, for us to be able to use on earth in order to look like Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about temporal worldly riches. I'm talking about grace and peace that passes understanding. A joy in the Lord, a joy of the Spirit. There are riches in heaven that He has lavished upon us and said, I want you to have these riches to be able to look like my son. Whether or not you use them and reckon them to your life is up to you. You've got access. Now you need to just go do it. Are you ready? Are you ready for his return? Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If that's your stance, if Christ is not your first love and you are not desperately hastening for the coming of the Lord, it's not the, the cry of your heart, the desiderata domini. If you don't dearly long to be with the Lord, then you might be among those who you might say that you're a Christian. But you might miss that knock when it comes on the door. Because it will only be there for those who are willing to endure to the end. As Matthew 10.22 says or Hebrews 10.36. And hear that knock. To them, Jesus will open that door. Actually, I can't even say that. Luke 12 says that we have to open the door. It's to them that Jesus will be standing there and we open that door to him and he'll say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And turn to the joy of your master. Y'all be blessed.